This edition of Retrogram briefly mentions plot-relevant details of a fictional story that involves sexual assault and assault on minors. If you are a parent or if you yourself are sensitive to these topics, please be forewarned. Retrogram. Revisiting TV futures from the past. An examination of yesteryear's television science fiction, fantasy, spy-fi, horror, and superhero shows. Commencing Retrogram. Retrogram number 8160. Blake 7, a user's guide to the classic BBC series that ran from 1970-80 through 1981. Welcome back to Retrogram, a podcast that hits the big rewind button, backing us out of today and returning us to yesterday to sample a week's worth of sci-fi, superhero, horror, spy-fi, or fantasy TV, just to see if that stuff is as good as we remember it just because we were kids, or if it was actually that good. But in this edition of Retrogram, I'm going to focus with laser-like intensity on one show. And with good reason. After years of it appearing and disappearing on YouTube like the unwitting victim of a game of whack-a-mole, Blake's 7 is now streaming in North America on BritBox and will soon be repeated on Forces TV in the UK and other parts of the world. On Twitter, avowed Blake 7 fan J. Michael Straczynski, who also happens to be the creator of such classic TV sci-fi as Babylon 5 and Sense 8, announced that he's re-watching Blake 7 for the first time in years. What is it about this show that has made those who watched it previously such die-hard fans? And here's the real challenge. Can I focus on the show without discussing the ending when that's one of the things people remember most about it? Without going into specifics, and I'm going to be doing some real mental and linguistic gymnastics here to avoid spoiling that ending, because Blake 7 is a lot better if you don't know that or any of the other major plot twists going in. This was one of the first television shows to have a true series finale, and was the first western sci-fi series to experiment with ongoing plot elements and loose story arcs, setting the stage for later experiments as Babylon 5, the reboot of Battlestar Galactica, and Lost, which ushered in our current 21st century age of serialized TV as the norm. To say Blake 7 was a trendsetter would be underselling it. This was a show that started rewriting the DNA of science fiction on television. There's a meme floating around the internet about how Inigo Montoya's trademark phrase from The Princess Bride, Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Is a perfect example of how to introduce yourself in a business setting. Introduce yourself, establish a relevant personal link, and manage expectations. That seems like a good formula to follow in introducing you to one of the genre's most quietly influential shows. We'll add a fourth step, and maybe a fifth, just to keep things a bit unpredictable. With all of that out of the way, let's get started with Blake 7, A User's Guide. Blake 7, A User's Guide. Chapter 1, Identify. 
It would be so easy to just read the story so far that I would use in a typical retrogram, so let's give that a try since it's already written. It is the third century of the second calendar in Earth's distant future. The Terran Federation rules over Earth and its outlying human colonies on other worlds with an iron fist. A rebellion is being led by Raj Blake, a former rebel leader who was brainwashed into confession and renouncing the resistance movement. Snapped out of his brainwashing after he witnesses a massacre of a peaceful civil resistance movement, Blake recruits a few fellow convicts bound for the prison planet Cygnus Alpha and commandeers a drifting alien starship which becomes known as the Liberator. Faster and more powerful than anything in the Federation fleet, the Liberator gives the resistance movement, or more specifically, Blake and his crew, an edge in striking back against the Federation's totalitarianism. Federation Supreme Commander Servalan reactivates the commission of the scarred, bitter Space Commander Travis, a man who was permanently disfigured in a battle with Blake during Blake's earlier rebellion, to bring Blake down once and for all a task Travis is more than happy to pursue as a personal vendetta. Well, okay, that's season one. The funny thing is, as more episodes from different points in the series' history have been covered in Retrogram, I have had to completely rewrite that for each season of the show. Because Blake 7, in its own start-and-stop, haltingly experimental way, is telling one big story. Now, if you were a fan of the 90s series Farscape, you remember that it ran afoul of the sci-fi channel, doing audience research and discovering that as Farscape's epic saga unfolded, it was increasingly difficult for new viewers to jump aboard. Blake 7 is more episodic in nature and doesn't necessarily have that problem, but very unusually for a live-action sci-fi series in the late 1970s, it remembers what happens in previous episode. It builds up toward major events, such as the second season, with Blake's obsession with finding and dismantling the Federation's central control computer complex. This isn't to say that it doesn't occasionally contradict itself, or that it doesn't occasionally set up something that you think is going to be a major development, but never appears again. But where it really matters, the show remembers. The show's characters remember. Grudges are held unlikely partnerships emerge, and the show counts on you to have kept score. Raj Blake is introduced in the first episode as something of an innocent everyman until we find out, at the same time that he does, that he was subjected to torture and brainwashing by the Federation to force a confession and a public recanting of his rebellious views. A final round of brainwashing dropped him back into the general populace as a milquetoast civil engineer. Like the rest of the population, his food and water were dosed with drugs that kept his ability to question the Federation and its motives in check until something happened that was so traumatic that it broke through his conditioning. He learned that his brother and sister had been killed by the Federation in their campaign to break his will, and then he witnesses the execution-style killings of a civilian resistance group, including the man who just gave him that information. At that point, there's no going back for Blake. He may not be the man he once was, but he sees the corruption at the heart of the Federation and is ready to tear it all down. Fearing his reappearance as a public hero, the Federation sets out to destroy his reputation, trumping up fictional charges of child molestation, even to the point of implanting false memories of those events into the minds of several children. His public defender, who has gathered evidence of the massacre Blake witnessed, is murdered by a Federation agent and the evidence destroyed before it can be brought up at Blake's show trial. The fix is in. 
Blake is sentenced to life on the prison planet Cygnus Alpha, a distant, inhospitable world from which none have returned. In the holding cell waiting for the transport ship to Cygnus Alpha, he meets two fellow prisoners, a convicted smuggler named Jenna Stannis, and a reoffending thief named Villa Restel. On the ship, Blake, Jenna, and their fellow prisoners learn that the authority of the prison ship crew is absolute and brutal. Jenna is told by the ship's first officer that she can earn gentler treatment in exchange for certain favors, a bargain she is not willing to make. Blake and his new friends meet more of their fellow convicts, including a strong man named Gan, who killed several Federation guards for assaulting his woman, and a computer hacker named Kerr Avon, who was caught in a sting operation while trying to pull off the biggest heist in the history of the Federation's central banking system. Together, and sometimes reluctantly and fractiously, they band together to try to cripple the prison ship when the opportunity arises in the form of turbulence caused by a colossal nearby space battle between unknown combatants. Though Blake, Jenna, and Avon get the upper hand, the prison ship's first officer starts executing other prisoners until Blake surrenders. But the prison ship, back under the control of its crew, stumbles upon an amazing find. One of the ships involved in the battle has been abandoned, left derelict, but largely intact. Its crew is simply gone. Two prison ship guards are sent across in an airlock to secure the alien ship and claim the salvage reward on behalf of the crew, but it sounds as though over the communicator they die horrible deaths in trying to do so. The ruthless, unethical first officer of the prison ship suggests sending prisoners over instead. Troublemakers Blake, Avon, and Jenna are naturally the first to go. They find the bodies of the guards who boarded the ship before them, and they find an automatic defense system that plucks memories out of their minds to trick them into lowering their defenses as it kills them. But Blake, who is keenly aware of just how much he's been mind lately, resists and disables the automatic defense system. The first officer of the prison ship, not wanting Blake to get any ideas about staying aboard the alien ship, or for that matter staying alive much longer, decides to follow them, only to find himself sucking down cold hard vacuum as Jenna pilots the alien ship away, leaving him to plunge out of the airlock into deep space. The alien ship, which christens itself the Liberator after reading Jenna's thoughts, trails the prison ship to Cygnus Alpha, a trip during which Blake and the others become acquainted with the ship's abilities and acquainted with Zen, the artificial intelligence that runs this ship. This ship is faster than anything in the Federation fleet and better armed, and it's equipped with a teleportation system that eliminates the need to land the ship, leaving it vulnerable on any planet's surface. Blake tries to rescue his fellow prisoners, only to find that Cygnus Alpha is governed not by the Federation, but by a religious death cult ruled by the descendants of previous prisoners. Villa and Gan are rescued and join Blake's crew. On a later visit to sabotage a Federation facility on another planet, Blake recruits Callie, who is an Auron, an offshoot of the human race which developed telepathy. Very soon, Supreme Commander Servaland, the Federation's highest-ranking military officer, realizes she has a huge problem on her hands from both a security and public relations standpoint. She reinstates the commission of the disgraced Space Commander Travis, who was discharged from Federation service after committing savage war crimes. Some of those involved Blake and his first resistance movement, so Travis is more than happy to take on the task of tracking Blake down again. But with the Liberator and its technology at Blake's back, that won't be an easy task. And that's at least the first three episodes and some minor details of episodes four and six. 
all of that. We learn that Gan can use his immense strength only up to a certain point. A limiter implant in his brain, as part of his murder sentence, keeps him from using lethal force and actually makes him something of a liability in conflicts where deadly force is on the table. Villa, while he is an expert pickpocket, safecracker, and lockpicker, is also a coward extraordinaire who would just as soon be finding a drink to soothe his nerves. And Avon? He has very few scruples, and in the end he's really out only for himself, and he thinks he could put the Liberator to better use than Blake could with all of this talk of a revolution. Ah, I'm sure that'll turn out okay. Blake 7, A User's Guide. Chapter 2, Establish Relevant Personal Links. There is enough paperwork in the BBC vaults that we know precisely when Terry Nation pitched the show to the BBC's heads of series and serials, Ronnie Marsh, at a meeting on Tuesday, September 9th, 1975. For context, this was several months after the spring launch of Nation's latest creation, Survivors, which had already proven to be a hit, but which Nation had already left his day-to-day duties on because of an ongoing series of disagreements with the producer assigned to Survivors, Terence Dudley. It was also just a few months after the acclaimed six-part Doctor Who story Genesis of the Daleks, credited on screen to Terry, but given some help on its way to the shooting stage by Doctor Who script editor Robert Holmes, which established the definitive origin story of the Daleks and introduced their creator, Davros, while allowing the Doctor to rail against the futility of war and the utter nonsense of nationalists obsessed with racial purity. Probably as a hedge to prevent Nation from bolting to a rival broadcaster like ITV if more money or creative control were offered, it was an open-ended meeting whose brief was basically, What would you like to do for the BBC next, Terry? And Terry Nation, without really having rehearsed anything, blurted out a rough and slightly disjointed description of a space adventure series that he referred to as the Dirty Dozen in Space. And boom, a sale was made after what was basically a glorified elevator pitch. Cue every wannabe TV writer in the entire world being green with envy for the next 46 years at the time of this recording, maybe more by the time individual listeners hear this. The landscape of television, sci-fi, and fantasy, at least in the UK, was sparse at the time Terry Nation blurted out his unrehearsed pitch for Blake 7. Tom Baker had donned his long, multicolored scarf at the beginning of the year, beginning what would eventually come to be seen as Doctor Who's salad days. Survivors was a success, regardless of the creative tug-of-war between Nation and Dudley behind the scenes, though it did lose its most visible cast member at the end of its first season, as Carolyn Seymour departed Survivors for personal reasons. The Tomorrow People had completed its third season by that point in 1975. One-off series such as Sky and The Changes had appeared and just as quickly disappeared. But shows from the U.S., such as The Six Million Dollar Man, were increasingly finding primetime slots in the U.K. Just days before Terry's pitch to the BBC Brass, ITV premiered Space 1999, possibly the high-water mark, budgetarily speaking, for TV sci-fi in the UK in the 1970s. Away from the small screen, 1975 had produced headlines that may have seeped into Terry Nation's subconscious as well. The Khmer Rouge gaining control of Cambodia and beginning a genocidal reign of terror. The fall of Saigon and the end of the United States' disastrous involvement in Vietnam. 
assassinations of heads of state in Saudi Arabia, Chad, Bangladesh, and two attempts on the life of President Gerald Ford. Civil wars, terrorist bombings. 1975 can seem, in hindsight, to be a year that the world was trying to come apart at the seams. It was also a year that brought us the Altair 8800 microcomputer, which sparked the careers of Bill Gates and Paul Allen. It was the year that brought Jaws and the Rocky Horror Picture Show to the big screen and saw such small-screen institutions as Saturday Night Live and The Price is Right premiere as well. It's also helpful to know where Terry Nation was coming from as a writer. Born in Cardiff, Wales in 1930, young Terry got to witness firsthand the fear that the Nazis might conquer all of Europe. By the time he was 30, he was writing comedy routines for Tony Hancock, though he also contributed three scripts to a science fiction anthology series, Out of the Unknown, which was broadcast by ABC. That is the British ABC Weekend Television Network, which eventually merged with Rediffusion London to form Tams Television in 1968. Two of his Out of the Unknown scripts were adaptations of other writers' work. One was adapted from a Clifford Simak story, the other from a Philip K. Dick story. The third was a Terry Nation original titled Botany Bay, starring William Gaunt and Julian Glover, one of only two times out of 13 episodes that Out of This World presented a completely original story. Terry's work caught the eye of David Whittaker, the first script editor of Doctor Who, as that show was entering production a year later in 1963. Terry initially turned down Whittaker's overtures to write for Doctor Who, but then he and Tony Hancock got into a bitter argument over whose material was getting more airtime, and the comedian and his sketchwriter parted ways. Terry had a family to feed, so he contacted David Whittaker again to see if the Doctor Who job was still open. Whittaker and Doctor Who's young producer, Verity Lambert, were having a hell of a time lining up appropriate scripts for their new family viewing hour time travel series, so Terry was invited to bring his ideas to the table. The first of Terry's scripts to be broadcast proved that the former joke writer had plenty of serious matters on his mind, and of course the first of Terry's stories broke series creator Sidney Newman's edict against so-called bug-eyed monsters and introduced the Daleks, making Doctor Who an instant sensation in just its fifth and sixth weeks on the air. You will move of us and follow my directions. This way. Immediately. By the following Christmas, Nation had been commissioned to write a comeback story for the Daleks after killing them off in their first outing, and Dalek toys and other novelties made him a rich man since UK copyright law dictated that Nation still held the rights to his own creations since his services were engaged by the BBC as an outside freelance writer. Terry died in 1997, so keep in mind that every time that the Daleks have shown up on TV Doctor Who, old or new, or on the cover of a big finish Doctor Who audio story, that's a big cha-ching for the nation estate. There were plenty of financial incentives for the BBC to keep asking Terry to come up with ideas for new shows, and he always kept an ownership stake in his creations, which is why you'll often see Terry's name appended to the title of either show and any modern merchandise from either show, particularly the Big Finish audio dramas continuing the stories of Blake Seven or Survivors. But it's in Terry's formulation of the Daleks, 
faceless, tyrannical, xenophobic killers that you really see the closest point between any two of his works, because you can almost catch the reflection of the Daleks in the reflective masks of the Federation soldiers' helmets. But out of the two, it's actually the Federation soldiers who are scarier. The Daleks are the other. They're not shaped like us. Inside the armor, they're eventually revealed to be nothing like us, though from a narrative standpoint, of course, they're a vessel for the worst of us, our worst tendencies, our xenophobia and intolerance. But the Federation soldier is clearly a man, not a multi-tentacled blob, and thus a man who's decided that if the future of the Federation is, as Orwell once said, a boot stepping on a human face forever, they want to be the boot rather than the face. Blake 7, a user's guide, will return after a word from our sponsor. Ashley Thomas is the nerdy blogger. Ashley has a master's degree in literature and language, as well as a decade's worth of experience in writing for web publications. If you're looking for someone to assist you with copy for your website, blog posts, email campaigns, web store, social media management, or assistance with search engine optimization, Ashley's your gal. Ashley also spends her time writing about film, television, and comic books, contributing to sites such as fangirlish.com and popcultureretrorama.com. You can learn more about Ashley and the work she does at nerdyblogging.wordpress.com, where you can contact her for more information about her writing services. The Nerdy Blogger is proud to be a supporter of thelogbook.com and its podcasts. Blake 7, The User's Guide. Chapter 3, Manage Expectations. I am trying to be very equivocal with how I talk about Blake 7, while also pointing out its rightful place in the timeline of science fiction on TV. Later shows did the story arc thing better and possibly even earlier ones. Let's be clear, early 70s anime such as Space Battleship Yamato was hitting the ongoing story out of the park, something which thankfully was preserved in the English language dub that I saw as Star Blazers in late 1979, long before I'd ever even heard of Blake 7. A couple of years before Yamato, Kagaku Ninja Tai Gachaman also had a running storyline involving the deteriorating health, both physical and mental, of one of its main characters, something which was surgically excised when it was heavily re-edited for the Western world as Battle of the Planets. So I'm very careful to say that Blake 7 was the first live-action sci-fi series in the Western world to seriously pursue ongoing story threads. That being said, nowhere have I said they get it right every time. Compared to what we see on TV in the 21st century, Blake 7 was taking baby steps. The same two senators keep showing up to question Servalant's competence. The first episode of the series takes great pains to tell us that the Federation doses the civilian food and water supplies with drugs to keep the population docile. Episode 51 out of 52 has scenes that are enough to make you question whether Blake and his crew have had any effect at all. Terry Nation appeared and disappeared from his own show and would then pop back in again. He's credited with writing every script in the first season, as well as the second season's first episode and two others that year. He also writes three episodes in season three, but by the time the fourth season rolled around, Terry had moved across the Atlantic to try to find his fortunes in Hollywood. Fortunes, which, according to IMDb, amounted to 
a six-episode producer stint on MacGyver, with writing credits on only three episodes of MacGyver, and co-writing credits on an episode of A Fine Romance, and a made-for-TV movie called A Masterpiece of Murder, which starred Bob Hope and Donna Amici. And Claudia Christian! Terry Nation wasn't one to let the grass grow beneath his feet. Several of his scripts for the first season had to be revised heavily by Chris Boucher, the show's script editor, through all four seasons. If Nation gets the credit for creating the characters, Boucher should get a lot of the credit for fleshing them out. But early on, it's also quite apparent that Boucher decided that Avon was a far more interesting character than Blake, and began giving Avon the best lines and snappiest comebacks, with Villa coming in a close second. In some respects, Blake 7 is way ahead of its time. Servalan is a real threat both to Blake and his crew, and to anyone above her in the Federation food chain, because she is not content to simply be in charge of the military. In some respects, Blake 7 is disappointingly behind the times. Before beginning his work on Blake 7, Chris Boucher had written two consecutive stories for Doctor Who, introducing the character of Leela, a companion who often posed as much of a threat to the Doctor's enemies as the Doctor himself did, perhaps even more in the short term. But then on Blake 7, we're introduced to Jenna, a tough, no-nonsense smuggler who quickly gets relegated to being a glamorous decoration on the Liberator's flight deck. The same goes for Callie. She is introduced as a guerrilla warrior who finds it hard to trust anyone after having spent so much time fighting on her own. The same fate awaits her as well. She leaves the ship to go on adventures with the core male cast members only slightly more often than Jenna does, and it often seems like the writers who came in after Nation and Boucher forgot the whole telepathy thing. And there are even a couple of episodes where it's decided that Servalan is an object to be ogled, something that you'd think Servalan would have a guy shot for. Blake 7 is sadly very much of its time in not giving most of its female characters their share of the action, which would be easier to understand if they didn't have such strong introductions. If they were introduced as nothing more than a pretty face and then stayed that way, it would just be a clear indicator that nothing was expected of them but they are introduced as badasses, and then that gets left on the table. It's worth mentioning that there are decades of fan fiction and several years of more recent and more official audio plays that redress this balance, but those are a mere consolation prize for what could have been on the screen. It's really one of the more disappointing aspects of the show. While we're managing expectations and discussing disappointing things about Blake 7, let's go ahead and have the talk about special effects. Blake 7 inherited the Monday night BBC One time slot of a cancelled police procedural drama, Softly Softly Task Force. Blake 7 also inherited the budget of that show. David Maloney, who was the producer of Blake 7 for its first three seasons, is well known for telling the story of taking the show's in-house BBC effects artists to see a little film called Star Wars when it premiered in the UK in August 1977 as Blake 7 was about to start filming. They went into the theater thinking maybe they could learn a new trick or two that they could translate to a television budget and came out of the theater two hours later thoroughly demoralized because the goalposts had just moved beneath their feet. Space 1999 and Doctor Who and the original Star Trek were no longer the competition for Blake 7. The competition in the public's eye was now going to be industrial light and magic. But they were stuck with the budget that had been previously apportioned to a modern-day cop show, and they made the best of it. 
The Liberator is a magnificent piece of model work, but one whose combination of sharp angles and rounded surfaces was a bear to light. And it was a model so large that it was nearly impossible to fly it on strings. The camera had to be moved past the model, not the other way around. Early episodes, and ultimately the opening credits of the show, used photo-based animation to show the Liberator in action, because that was easier, but had the unfortunate side effect of looking almost like Terry Gilliam's photo-based animation work from Monty Python's Flying Circus. Solutions were eventually found, such as building a smaller model of the Liberator that could be flown from wires, but in the end, Blake 7 had a smaller budget than Doctor Who, and it always kind of looks like it. Then again, Doctor Who didn't exactly look like ILM either. The way Blake 7 and Doctor Who both created their loyal fan followings was leaning into their strengths, sharp character writing and memorable performances from the cast, as well as a number of I-can't-believe-that-just-happened plot developments in the overall story. Some of the acting in the show is amazing, though some of it is also very stagey in that 1970s BBC way. I'm not going to try to tell you that it's I-Claudius in space, but at times it almost is. The level of intrigue is certainly on that level, even if the level of acting isn't necessarily always there. I mean, Brian Blessed does show up in one early episode to shout at our heroes. But about all of these amazing performances, let me warn you, don't be complacent. Don't get too attached to any particular cast member, because not everybody makes it all the way through the show. There's one key character who is recast halfway through their tenure on the show, which I will tell you now is one of the most divisive topics that you can bring up in a room full of Blake 7 fans. New characters join the fight. Some of them fall in the course of fighting that fight. These people are not superheroes. Depending on the circumstances, they're not even really good people or particularly heroic. The first season of Blake 7 premiered the same year as Doctor Who's Key to Time season, and you would think that that would mean that there was a perfect pool of writers who could contribute to Blake 7's second season after Terry Nation wrote more or less the entire first season. But not so fast. Remember BBC drama head Ronnie Marsh? He had a rule in place that if you were a writer on one show, you could not contribute to the other show. Now, there was one very important exception to this rule, and, of course, that was Terry Nation himself. But that was a rule that bit Chris Boucher, preventing a Doctor Who story of his from being produced. And it was a rule that actually removed Robert Holmes, frequently held up as the definitive Doctor Who writer of the 20th Century series, from the Doctor Who writer's pool. You notice that while that all-Terry Nation first season of Blake 7 was running, the key to time storyline was happening in Doctor Who, to which Robert Holmes contributed two four-part stories. But when Robert Holmes shifted his attention to the second season of Blake 7, suddenly he was persona non grata as far as writing for Doctor Who. He didn't even return to Doctor Who until after Blake 7's four-year run was over to see off Peter Davison's Doctor. Blake 7 is not a perfect show, but it never fails to be engaging. Blake 7, a user's guide. Chapter 4, Influence.
The drug-induced total surveillance state we see at the beginning of Blake 7 owes a lot to literary sources such as Orwell's 1984 and Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. In fact, Brave New World mentions Soma being freely available to the populace, while Blake 7 establishes that a drink combining adrenaline and Soma is Villa's liquid lunch of choice, so it seems very likely that Terry Nation was quite familiar with both of these. With the Liberator's voice-activated computer and its teleport system and that whole Federation thing, I think it's also fair to say that Star Trek had a wee bit of influence on Blake 7. Now, this isn't an attempt to cry foul for plagiarism, though. I think it's much more likely that this is a case of Terry Nation benefiting from the hard-won wisdom of dramatic and production realities that had been gained the hard way by Roddenberry, Justman, Fontana, and so forth. It's more engaging to the audience to have a talking computer. It's easier on the budget to have a transporter or a teleport, though it may be a special effects expense each time it's used. It's just save them ever having to design and build a set for a shuttle interior, a model for a shuttle exterior that somehow doesn't look dinky next to the Liberator model, and so forth. Star Trek's transporters and talking computers were good common sense for practical and dramatic reasons, and whether or not Terry Nation ever picked up the Roddenberry Stephen Whitfield making of Star Trek book to find out why Star Trek did things that way, it would have been foolish to try to fly in the face of those production realities on a budget inherited from a modern-day cop show. Blake 7 spends its money on a stellar core cast and a rogues gallery of some of the best character actors on British TV in the late 70s and early 80s to play off of that core cast week after week, because that was a much better place to spend the money than on trying to beat Hollywood at the special effects game. Terry Nation's pitch may have been the dirty dozen in space, but it also owes a huge amount to Robin Hood. And I'm thinking it can't be a coincidence that a couple of years before he ever filmed a scene as Avon for Blake 7, Paul Darrow gave a particularly dangerous and cutthroat reading of the Sheriff of Nottingham in the BBC's six-part TV series The Legend of Robin Hood. There are times that you can almost draw one-to-one -one comparisons of Robin's band of merry men to Blake and his crew. Sadly, the Magnificent Seven doesn't really have as much influence on Blake 7, and for that, we can probably thank, you guessed it, Ronnie Marsh, who was notoriously leery of drawing the attention of Mary Whitehouse, a vocal crusader against sex and violence on television, who made Marsh's life hell on more than one occasion by accusing Doctor Who's scarier episodes of causing the children of Britain to have nightmares. For context, Doctor Who was considered Saturday evening tea time viewing, while Blake 7 aired at 9 o'clock on Monday nights, a time when the kids were expected to already be in bed in most households. So it did get away with, for example, Blake's flashbacks to his torture in the first episode, Avon's increasingly anti-heroic antics, and, it has to be said, some serious S&M vibes between Servalan and Travis in the first season. By the way, I should warn you, if you feel like seeking out fan fiction after experiencing the 52 episodes of the series proper, a lot of Blake 7 fanfic, I mean an awful lot of it, gets much racier than the show itself. I mean, perhaps more than the fanfic that arises in the wake of most sci-fi shows. I mentioned that the TV series, which tends to dress a lot of its characters in head-to-toe leather, has a little bit of an S&M theme going that seems to have happened more by costume department accident than by design, but the fanfic writers totally latch onto this and foreground it. I think I was 14, 
<laughs> First time I ordered a random smattering of Blake 7 fanfic zines. And while I thought of myself at the time as something of a pervy teenager, I definitely got an education that I wasn't expecting. We'll talk more in a few minutes about continuing your adventures with the Liberator crew beyond the TV series, but I thought this was a thing that definitely merits a mention. Blake 7 has also been a huge influence on what has come after it. J. Michael Straczynski has made no secret of the fact that some of the tone and themes of Blake 7, Hello, Nightwatch, and President Clark, wound up almost unconsciously in Babylon 5. There are a lot of visual elements of the show that informed Farscape and Lex and even Star Trek The Next Generation. Each show's central set, the bridge of those shows' respective ships, have a kind of center stage open acting area, not unlike the forward end of the Liberator's flight deck. It may interest you to know that a young Marina Sirtis auditioned for the part of Dana, a character who was added to the Liberator crew in Season 3, but didn't get the job. I think you can also draw a straight line between the head-to-toe leather costuming look of Blake 7 and that of Farscape some 20 years later. And whether you're talking Lost or The Walking Dead, or just about any other modern story arc-based show, it seems like most genre drama series these days have an Avon, a character who's really cool, really badass, gets the best lines, and yet you wonder if you should really be rooting for them. The shadow cast by Blake Seven on modern science fiction TV drama is immense. So in an era when Battlestar Galactica and V have been rebooted, and there are remakes galore all around, why has Blake Seven not returned to our screens in a blaze of CGI glory? Because you could not tell this story now in the Western world, not with the political narratives of the past 20 years. There's some extreme moral ambiguity in play with the original Blake Seven. Servalan, Travis, those obsequious recurring Federation senators, everyone on the Federation side of the equation repeatedly tells the viewer that Blake and his crew are terrorists. The viewer, of course, knows the reality of the situation is far different. They're freedom fighters opposing a tyrannical regime. But on the balance of things, by the time you get to episode 52, we really haven't seen Blake and Avon and the gang free very many people. We haven't even seen them collaborate with the larger resistance movement toward a common goal. If the Liberator crew isn't coordinating with other resistance cells, are they not as much of a rogue element to the supposed good guys as they are to the Federation's bad guys? Is that really helping anyone? And how much momentum gets lost to infighting among the characters that the show is implying we should be rooting for? Most of all, I think what's keeping Blake Seven off the table of modern TV is the repeated definition of Blake's crew as terrorists. At the time Terry Nation pitched the show and wrote the first season's storylines, that meant hit-and-run Irish Republican army bombings, maybe a hijacking somewhere at the outside. Only a couple of years into the 21st century, terrorists were suddenly a catch-all boogeyman, with governments of the Western world granting extraordinary emergency powers to their intelligence and enforcement agencies to thwart them, because every single plane might become a flying bomb if just one suspect person got aboard undetected. I'm not saying that 9-11 didn't happen or didn't matter, but I think future history is going to judge the generation that was in charge at that time for an outsized response that may become a textbook illustration of the law of unintended consequences. 
Look also at the summer of 2020 and the protests and occasional rioting that broke out because the people doing the protesting felt that no one was going to listen to them any other way. Some in the government wanted to label those protests terrorism because once it has that label applied to it, those are the bad guys and extraordinary measures can be justified to silence them. And I don't think the Western world, either the UK or the US, is ready for a show that even so much as hints that the good guys may well be terrorists and that they may well have a justifiable reason for taking the actions they're taking. And to remove that from Blake 7 leaves you with something that is no longer Blake 7. Example, an early 21st century audio reboot of Blake 7 produced by Andrew Mark Sewell, who had optioned the rights to the series from the estate of Terry Nation as something that might become a transmedia revival with television series and comics and video games attached, had some great casting. Colin Salmon was a very worthy successor as Avon, but it totally missed the mark by turning Blake into a kind of ex-super-soldier whose government had compelled him to serve in some quagmire of a war a la Vietnam or Afghanistan before abandoning its veterans who had given so much for the state. By rewriting Blake's background, that rips the heart out of the story. None of these people are supposed to be super-anything, with the possible exception of Avon always being super-sarcastic. They are fallible, deeply flawed people. This is a motley crew that came together aboard a prison ship. Blake might have been framed to keep him from becoming a folk hero again, but the rest of them were convicts. Convicted thieves, convicted smugglers, convicted killers. Lines had been crossed. The moral ambiguity of Blake 7 in its original formulation is part of the recipe. Removing that just causes the whole metaphorical souffle to collapse under its own weight. Big Finish Productions, after years of producing ridiculously faithful Doctor Who audio dramas and spin-offs, began producing Blake's Seven first as a series of audiobooks called The Liberator Chronicles, and finally shifting into full cast dramas with as many of the surviving cast as they could afford, though there were a couple of holdouts who wanted nothing more to do with this cheap-looking sci-fi show from the beginning of their careers. These audio stories were incredibly faithful to the TV series, and they began to fill in the gaps and ask some of the tough questions I mentioned earlier, and the cast, though their voices were noticeably older, was up for the challenge. Sadly, the death of Gareth Thomas in 2016 meant that Blake could no longer be part of the audio stories. Jacqueline Pierce died in 2018, taking Servalan off the table. When Paul Darrow died in 2019, Avon could no longer lead the remaining audio stories, and the show was over. Or was it? There's presumably a wider universe hinted at in prior TV and audio adventures, and faced with some insurmountable losses among the crew of the Liberator, Big Finish has now expanded its reach into what it's calling the worlds of Blake Seven, dealing with side characters and seemingly major threats that appeared in an episode or two of the TV series without ever figuring into the story again. Some of the surviving cast members, Sally Nevet as Jenna, Jan Chapel as Callie, Michael Keating as Villa, Stephen Greif, and Brian Croucher as Travis, are still taking part in these side stories in ways that tie them back to the primary Blake 7 storyline. If you reach the end of the 52 television episodes and want more, I cannot recommend highly enough that you give the Big Finish audio stories a listen. This is a show that's now over 40 years old, so it's kind of silly to be trying to warn you away from spoilers, but go ahead and pay heed to what I'm about to say. 
do not look up how the show ends. Don't research the show. Just watch it episode by episode and get to the end for yourself. Don't spoil it for others. This really is one of the great original TV sci-fi sagas, and it deserves to be watched more or less cold. So you'll have to forgive me if I've driven you a little bit crazy with vagueness in the course of this podcast. The fourth season of Blake 7 wasn't even supposed to happen at all. The cast and crew found out about it the way everyone watching the surprising season 3 finale did, from the voiceover announcer over the end credits of what they thought was the last episode of the entire series. Without spoiling that season 3 finale, you'll understand this better when you get there. This necessitated something of a reformulation of the entire show, and part of that reformulation was that it needed a finite ending. That ending has been the subject of about as much interpretation and speculation as the end of 2001 A Space Odyssey, since it aired just days before Christmas 1981. And indeed, before he died, Paul Darrow wrote and published, through Big Finish, a trilogy of novels in which he offered his speculation as to the future of Blake 7. Again, you'll understand when you finish episode 52, but all of the other Blake 7 Big Finish stories take place at various points in the show's past, because they kind of have to. For years, since I was a teenager, I've carefully guided many of my friends through discovering Blake 7 for themselves, avoiding spoilers, and delighting in their reactions. A friend of mine who I most recently handheld through the series seemed particularly happy that I had done so the way that I did, hence this podcast. Blake 7 is finally in the streaming universe where it can be seen and enjoyed once again. It can be enjoyed both for what an iconic piece of disco-era sci-fi TV that it is, as well as for what a seismic influence it is on a lot of what came after it. But the good news is, it can be enjoyed once more. So go forth and enjoy it. The Retrogram Podcast was researched, written, and hosted by Earl Green. The show's theme music was composed and performed by Jazar and licensed under Creative Commons. You can find his work at betterwithmusic.com and at freemusicarchive.org. If you like Retrogram, give a big thanks to the logbook.com's Patreon supporters. If you love Retrogram, become one of them. Every little bit helps keep the logbook.com and its podcasts and videocasts going. You can be like Philip, Kevin, Ferg, Darwin, Cindy, Paul, Mark, Charles, and Ashley, and sign up as a patron at patreon.com slash thelogbook. If monthly contributions aren't your thing, we totally get that too. You can buy us a coffee at ko-fi.com slash thelogbook as well. You can also support the site by buying t-shirts, other clothing, and household goods, even face masks, and more from our store at thelogbook.redbubble.com with designs featuring everything from classic Odyssey 2 games to classic space missions to, you know, I think there's a t-shirt that has the logbook.com logo and a little liberator zooming away from it. Just saying. You can also order all sorts of things from Amazon and eBay through our affiliate links at thelogbook.com slash store. And if you like watching stuff, feel free to sign up for Paramount Plus or Hulu through our links. And if you decide to stay as a subscriber, that helps the logbook and retrogram out a lot. And by the way, you can sign up for BritBox through Amazon.com. Retrogram is a production of thelogbook.com.
do not attempt to resist arrest. No matter what the provocation, we must not resort to violence. We claim our rights as citizens and demand to be treated as civil prisoners.